people are beginning to realize that the movement is shrinking. The movement is shrinking. The goals are further away than ever before. The ambitions are shrinking. The countries are not delivering. My guest today is Benny Pizer. I'm the director of the Global Warming Policy Foundation, which Nigel Lawson um, and I launched back in 2009 in the run-up to the Copenhagen UN Climate Conference. And I've been running the GWPF for the last 14 years or so, of which the last thir the first 13 years, not many people wanted to listen to what we had to say, but things are beginning to change. Yeah, let's jump right into that. What What is changing? What do you see is happening in the last year or so that's looking encouraging from your perspective? Well, I wouldn't call it encouraging. <laughs> it's... Uh, the world is in a big mess. There are huge geopolitical uh, problems and conflicts. They are overshadowing everything else. And it is my view that the age of climate alarmism is coming gradually to an end and the age of energy security and energy realism is just beginning. Do you think uh, the U.S. is, uh, in the West, they're doing the best job of, of uh, energy realism? Because in contrast to most other Western nations, the U.S. is deeply split, is deeply partisan on these issues. And you have uh, individual states that still continue with some form of independent uh, policy options, it is much easier in the U.S. to discuss these issues and to change policies and change directions than in most other Western nations, where there is an almost all-party consensus on climate energy policy. Um, on top of that, the U.S., of course, the whole of North America is blessed with abundant, cheap, forms of energy that makes North America the energy super potential energy superpower of the 21st century. And I am fairly confident that future policymakers will return to realizing just how important energy security and cheap energy will be for the global position the U.S. used to have and may needs to have in the future. Uh, from your perspective, do you think there's any uh, forces uh, from China that are actively working in the U.S. because they see that the U.S. has so many hydrocarbon resources that they're trying to uh, maybe push climate alarmism to try to weaken the U.S.? Is that something that's happening or no? Well, obviously, we, we've had, you know, occasionally reports about Russian and China, uh, Chinese interference uh, on, you know, U.S. and Western policies. Um, and even if some of the campaigners aren't, you know, funded directly by these uh, 
hostile nations, uh, they're doing a pretty good job uh, to uh, undermine America's energy power and energy independence. Um, so there is a is a real problem of the kind of useful idiots doing the dirty work for America's foes. Um, what do you see happening right now in the last year or so in the UK? Do you think that uh, there's more energy realism now in the UK? Well, what has happened in the UK and, and actually initially in Europe as such is that the cost of energy, which has essentially doubled in the last 18 months or so, is becoming a severe threat to the livelihoods of tens of millions of people, of businesses, um, the competitiveness of European industry is declining rapidly because energy costs have risen so fast, which also affects inflation because obviously businesses are passing on the cost of their energy uh, costs onto consumers. So there has been a huge backlash and uh, governments are being, beginning to backtrack and water down some of the policies, but it is uh, at the margins, but it is a clear indication that the priorities are shifting. And this is only going to uh, accelerate because European energy policy is a complete and utter fiasco. Um, and people are beginning to realize that the promises made that green energy would reduce the cost and would increase security and so on is is just um, not delivering. is exactly the opposite. And that has caused a, a policy crisis uh, all along Europe and also in the UK where the government has begun to roll back a little bit uh, probably not enough um, to make a difference. Uh, can you tell us some of the specifics about how politicians in the UK were photographed to heroically blowing up coal-fired power plants? Did, did that happen one time or more than once, or what happened there? Well, that that's in the past, and of course, that's happened over the last three, four, five years, um, just you know to show off. Um, ministers did that indeed. Not so much in Germany, where uh, you may know the German government has closed down all nuclear power plants and is returning to coal. The lights would go out in Germany without uh, enormous coal power. And Germany is sitting on hundreds of years of lignite, um, brown coal. So they will burn coal as if there is no tomorrow, just to keep the lights on. That is not so uh, readily available in Britain. Britain only has two uh, coal power plants left. The others, as you said, were blown up or dismantled to such an extent that you can't actually uh, power them up again. So uh, in that respect, uh, Britain is relying more on natural gas. But Germany, almost half of Germany's electricity generation is now powered by burning coal, which tells you all you need to know about a government that uh, includes the Green Party 
and which has achieved this enormous achievement of closing down nuclear power, going for coal instead. Did I hear you correctly elsewhere say that the UK does have coal and they could start coal mining reasonably in the next few years or no? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there is still coal. Uh, Britain has still two coal-powered fire, uh, two, sorry, two coal plants still open. They were supposed to be closed next year, but the government realizes they are absolutely necessary to keep the lights on. And so they've asked um, the companies to keep the coal power plants uh, still running. Uh, with regard to coal, yes, of course, there is still coal in Britain. In fact, uh, offshore coal um, is estimated to be there. There is estimated to be enough offshore coal for another thousand years, something like that. So there is no lack of coal in 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 Europe. Um, there are still huge coal reserves, and uh, indeed some gas reserves. Never mind shale gas, but uh, the Europeans don't want to. Um, make their hands dirty and so are relying on imports so that they can say, look, we're, we're not using our own resource. We're just importing it from all these nice countries. I'm not really familiar with offshore coal. Are, is that happening that people are taking advantage of that elsewhere in the world, offshore coal? Not to my knowledge. Uh, and of course, it's not economic. But we're not running out of coal. That's what I'm saying. Um, I mean, obviously, onshore there are a few, uh, you know, places where they are trying to open new mines, but they're highly controversial, as you can expect. Um, but all I'm saying is uh, Europe is not running out of coal, uh, but is running out of the will to use it and instead is mainly buying it from, you know, abroad, uh, including uh, Russia. Uh, how much worry do you think there is in Europe in general that it's going to be possibly a really cold winter and that keeping everybody warm is going to be a problem or is that kind of solved right now? I think for the time being, um, there is enough uh, gas. Um, they bought enough natural gas for this winter. Uh, but with every year... Uh, the risk of blackouts is increasing because as you add more and more renewables to the grid, uh, the grid becomes less and less stable and more and more difficult to stabilize. Um, you've seen this in other parts of the world, uh, Australia and, and Texas and so on. Eventually, it's becoming increasingly difficult to stabilize a grid that is too much reliant on renewables. But I'm not expecting anything this winter. I mean, you can't rule it out, but uh, so as much as I know, there is enough capacity uh, even for a cold winter. But as I said, every year the, the risks are going up and, and the problems are rising. How about all these stunts that the anti-hydrocarbon people are pulling about gluing themselves to things and blocking roads and throwing soup, all that stuff? Uh, how is that working out for them? I don't think that makes a big difference. Um, as I mentioned, European governments have begun to roll back a lot of the policies. Uh, they wanted to ban uh, conventional cars 
you know, ICE cars by 2035. They've watered that down and said, oh, you can still buy a conventional car, but it has to use synthetic fuels in 2035. So, you know, uh, uh, car producers can still uh, produce conventional cars. They don't have to uh, build uh, electric vehicles because the EU decided to water it down and open this loophole for conventional cars that need e, you know, synthetic fuels. So the protesters, uh, it's more a stunt, uh, but they don't have as much impact uh, as they used to have because, the, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning, the whole political mood is shifting and is shifting away from the green agenda towards the economic and cost of living agenda and the geopolitical and security agenda, which is now dominating the political discourse. So you're not seeing it. Uh, people don't really care about the scientific arguments about whether CO2 is the control knob or things like that. They're more concerned about uh, other problems being bigger than the alleged climate problem. Does that, that sound right? Look, the scientific debate will go on for decades to come. I have no doubt. Um, given the complexities of the climate, it will be a long time before we know who's got it right and who's got it wrong. Um, the, the, the issue is as long as global temperatures continue to rise as they have, uh, over, over recent decades, um, the scientists will say, well, we are right. We we've told you so, um, this is all down to our CO2 emissions and, uh, critics will find it very difficult to counter that. Uh, and we saw even uh, at the beginning of the century when there was a, you know, the famous uh, pause for 10, 15 years, even then uh, the mainstream scientists were saying, well, you know, they found 50 different explanations for why temperatures didn't go up, uh, including Chinese coal power plants or pollution. So I have no doubt that the scientific issue uh, although it won't play a big role anymore uh, and is completely overshadowed by the political, economic, and national security concerns, will go on for decades to come, and we won't know for sure who's right and who's wrong. Are you seeing any difference yourself as you go out and speak in public? Because just this morning I was watching you speaking to uh, spoiled students in Cambridge a few years ago. Uh, is your reception kind of the same still now as it was then? No, I think uh, the public mood is now quite, first of all, after 30 years of uh, listening to the same, um, you know, alarm sirens and, and the, the, the same kind of scare stories, people are beginning to be a bit, not immune, but kind of less uh, concerned than they used to be because you know, how many uh, scares can you live with? You have to prioritize what are your biggest concerns? What do you fear most? And during times of, you know, uh, mass employment and, and, and high living standards, you, you know, you uh, can afford the luxury to be concerned about environmental issues. But when it comes to war and economic hardship, and and real pain, um, your priorities 
change. And that's what we're seeing in Europe. The priorities are shifting um, and the electoral uh, voting system is shifting and parties are struggling to keep support. And so I sense that there is, as I said, initially a big shift away from the climate agenda to other major concerns. People are more concerned about keeping their homes warm than they are about climate change. Did I understand you correctly? I think elsewhere you might have said that there's kind of a brainwashed generation that watched an inconvenient truth or they had this pushed on them in school and they they believe it. But there's another generation coming up after them that doesn't believe it as much. Does that sound right or no? It's not so much whether they b believe it or not. It's the kind of <laughs> uh, fervor with which they believe um, and how important it is. I don't see a big kind of skeptical movement. Um, I think that it's more, okay, uh, we've heard that, but you know what? I have other concerns that are more important to me. And I think uh, given the war in the Ukraine, given the crisis in the Middle East, given the problems we are facing with China and Russia and so on, young people have completely different concerns and worries nowadays than perhaps 10 years ago. That, that's my impression. doesn't mean that they are starting to say, oh, this is all nonsense. And, you know, um, that's perhaps a, 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 a step too far and not really necessary. They are just, it's not on their radar that much as it used to be. Okay. I do think that's a great point that if you ask them, they might say that they believe it, but if, uh, if they're asked to spend ten dollars a month on it, then oh, they're not willing to spend the ten dollars no, even. Yeah, no, no, very good point. Um, I was looking back here, and uh, it says I read up on you in 1997. You founded CCNet, the world's leading climate policy network. I remember getting emails from you a long time ago. So you've been involved uh, almost longer than anybody in this debate. Is that correct? Is that right? Well, for all my sins, I'm involved in this for a long time. Um, after all, I was one of the founders of the Green Party in Germany back in the late 70s, right? So I, I've been involved in the environmental movement for, you know, nearly 50 years. And I've seen it all. Every single scare you can imagine, I've seen them. And, um, you know, it took me to basically realize that some of the scares I was concerned about, like Chernobyl and so on, were totally exaggerated. But at the time, we didn't know what was happening, and we feared the worst, not, not least because of the media coverage of, of you know nuclear disasters. Now, over the years, we've learned so much about the risk of nuclear energy and the uh, scaremongering at the time. And you learn. I mean, that's some people learn. Let's put it this way. Not everyone, but some people learn from their own experience of being um, exposed to exaggerated fear-mongering. Interesting. I did not know that uh, you had been involved that long. So you were involved in uh, looking at environmental policy way before global warming was even talked oh, about. Oh, yeah. 
Well, it's really, really started with the anti-nuclear movement. Uh, I mean, you could go back even, you know, the early environmentalists in the in the fifties and sixties, but but basically in the mid late seventies in Europe and in the U.S., the big environmental movement, if it wasn't kind of population related, that was a, a different kind of movement. But it was basically we're destroying the planet, and nuclear energy is basically uh, causing the end of civilization and so on. So th that that was the beginning. No one talked about climate change. Climate change really only came on the radar after the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, really, and, and, and the fall of Berlin Wall, when there was a real kind of ideological gap opening up and the left was desperate to find a new agenda. So you think that timing was not at all coincidental that... There was a reason why global warming it's uh, first fired up then. Yeah. Well, in a way, it was uh, coincidental in that the you know we had a cooling period from the forties to the seventies, so that came to an end, and then we saw the beginning of a warming period, and of course that was also the start of the of the warming concern. But it coincided with the collapse of Marxism the collapse of uh, the, the kind of traditional socialist ideology and the uh, emotional and ideological need to find, for many people, to find a new kind of idea that explained the world for them. Were you around when people were arguing that the burning hydrocarbons was causing the cooling in the 70s? I've read old articles that were saying that. Yeah. You're I mean, uh, I was around, I was a teenager at the time, but of course, um, that was that coincided with a, with a kind of Yom Kippur war in, in the Middle East and the, and the oil embargo, and I can remember playing on the motorways uh, on a Sunday because there was there were no cars allowed to drive in germany on you know on sundays um so these scares go back you know for decades and decades um and you know on reflection they they do um influence people's thinking of course fear does make people uh start irrational uh, thoughts and and fear. The media lives of fear. Uh, and some fears, some were potent than others. And the environmental fears have always been extremely potent. It just seems terribly embarrassing to the whole global warming movement. If we do look back at the, uh, the cooling scare and how it was blamed on fossil fuels again, and all of the bad stuff that warming is supposed to cause, we're supposed to be caused by cooling. I think there's a CIA memo where they were saying uh, droughts are going to get worse, uh, floods are going to get worse, storms, everything was going to get worse. Yeah, of course. Uh, and and people who read up on the history of the environmental movements and the environmental scares realize that many of the fears are just the same and are exaggerated. It doesn't mean they are completely pointless, but they tend to be completely exaggerated over the top in order to make you fear and in order to make you 
donate and to make you protest and 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 to you know be, turn you into an activist that's what fear does uh, do you spend much of your time actually trying to uh, looking at the science and trying to predict whether it's going to cool next or warm next yeah i monitor climate science of course uh, to such an extent that i realize no one has a clue on either side, by the way. <laughs> Anyone who claims they understand the climate and can predict the climate is a fool in my eyes. There are too many known unknowns and even unknown unknowns to fully grasp the climate. So, for instance, if anyone were to ask me, you know, in 10 years' time, would it be warmer than today or cooler than today or the same as today, I would say, I have no idea, and I doubt anyone has an idea. I totally agree with that. But how about the narrative of that that's going to uniformly warm from here to 2100? That, I would say, I, I would bet against that just because of history. What history? What history? I mean, just the uh, the warming and cooling cycles that we've seen throughout uh, the history that's been documented in the last maybe 300 years or whatever or more. Warm, cold, warm, cold. Yeah, yeah, uh, of course um, that that is true. But our even our history is marginal. Even our history is not fully. You know, we don't even know today how warm the medieval warm period was. We have no idea. Um, in all likelihood, it was a global climate event. I I don't buy into it was just the northern hemisphere, but. Even even if it was a global event, we don't know whether it was as warm as today, warmer than today, less warm. We have because the data we have is just too poor. So, given how little we really understand past climate change, which means how little we understand about natural variability, it's very very difficult to make any predictions for the future. And uh, I have not, I mean, anyone says uh, in, in 80 years times, it will be much warmer than today. I think, again, this is pure speculation. Um, I have no idea. And I'm in that respect, I'm a complete agnostic. And I don't take a position on climate science other than I'm pretty sure the scares are exaggerated. Very good. Do you have any predictions as to what might happen just at uh, in Dubai at the next COP? Is it going to be the same as all the other COPs? Or, yeah, <laughs> we publish every year a short kind of COP ritual paper. The the ritual, right? So it goes like this. So first of all, there are the hopes that something good will come out. Then people would say, uh, "It's the it's our last chance." It's our last chance. And then they will say, um, when the conference goes along, eventually comes the kind of deadlock. The conference is deadlocked. It can't come to a compromise. And then two minutes before the end of the conference, there's the breakthrough, and they actually agree. And they agree to meet again next year to do the same thing again. And yeah, that's what I'm expecting this year. Even I've been following it for a lot of years now, and that has happened every single time. Yeah. 
every single time it happens that that same story Look, plays out. The reality is, and people, most people are not aware of that, that Indians yesterday announced that their coal production will increase by 60% by 2030, right? The Chinese are on a coal boom. They are subsidizing every coal power plant now just to keep the country going. Most of Asia is going for coal. There is no chance in hell that you can see any form of significant decarbonization in the near future. It's the opposite is happening. In fact, the BBC showed a program yesterday where they said every country, I think every country is planning to increase their oil and gas production, literally. I mean, apart from a handful, right? So we are going in the opposite direction of what we've been told for 30 years. The green agenda is fraying, is, is near disintegrating because of the costs and the high subsidies. Um, there's a crisis with wind energy. The stocks are collapsing. Even solar stocks are collapsing. I mean, wherever you look, the green, the green net zero agenda is falling apart in front of our eyes. So I'm not expecting any significant changes to that in the near future. And if at all, in the, let's say, next 10 or 20 years, there is a breakthrough, a technological breakthrough, it is most likely to be a nuclear technological breakthrough to make nuclear uh, more cost-effective and faster also to, to develop and deploy. So I don't, I, I think the renewables are a cul-de-sac, are a dead end. They will turn out to be a problem to a cleaner future rather than part of the cleaner future because they distort markets, they uh, destabilize national grids. They are simply not delivering enough electricity at a reliable and cost-effective way. So I think the crisis of renewables will deepen and there will, and I hope so, there will be a, a nuclear renaissance um, in which nuclear becomes cheaper, more acceptable and easier to deploy because in the long frame of things, nuclear energy will be our future. Of course, we will be using fossil fuels for decades to come, I have no doubt, but the trajectory will be a kind of gas to nuclear pathway uh, in those countries that begin to realize uh, that renewables are, are dead end. I think you've said elsewhere that we will never see uh, like a major country uh, that's powered just by wind and solar panels. That because of storage, that that will never happen. No, I, I, yeah, that that's uh, technologically near impossible uh, and economically simply utopian. And we don't even have a single town or city 
or islands that can manage that. It doesn't exist, right? And they've tried. Uh, and this is the realization, the gradual realization that, that the renewables are part of the problem and not part of the solution to our long-term energy, affordable energy, secure system. Because we need a lot more energy, uh, electricity in particular, and um, there will be, I, I mean, I can sense it already here in Europe is a big, big new interest in uh, nuclear, but nuclear is still too expensive. Uh, so there have to be also regulatory changes. The, the, the regulations are so crazy that the first hurdle for any company that wants to build a nuclear power plant, just the paperwork to get through is a 500 million pounds or something like that. I mean, crazy money. Just the regulatory hurdles are so crazy. So hopefully with new... Uh, technological advances, the costs can come down and perhaps also the safety, the safety issues can be increased. That's my hope, that there will be a shift. You see, I'm not against a decarbonization. I just be a realist. I think it's not possible to do it within 30 years. It will be much longer. And I also think we have more time to, to do that more gradually and more uh, consumer and economically friendly, uh, but eventually there will be a path from uh, fossil fuels towards nuclear. That's what I hope, because nuclear is, you know, is the end game of our uh, global energy uh, mix. In in the end, that's what will power our civilizations. I think elsewhere you've said that right now natural gas is better at load following than nuclear plants. But uh, Cal Abel was on my podcast talking about that. Do you think we're pretty close to solving that problem, to, to doing that load following with nukes? Well, um, are you talking about the kind of nuclear energy backing up renewables? Uh, just following, uh, maybe renewables don't even need to be in the picture. No, yeah, no. Um, yeah, a mix between natural gas and nuclear is, I think, the ideal mix. In, in fact, that was the original plan in Britain in the 1990s. That was the policy agenda, to go away from coal and to go to natural gas and nuclear. And that mix would have actually reduced, if you wanted to reduce CO2 emissions, more than the current system, because currently we use uh, a lot of renewables, which means the gas-fired power plants are used very inefficiently, which makes them emit much more. But yes, that, that, you know, you have to help governments to get off the hook. You have to help them how to get back to a rational energy policy that makes their economy and our standards of living um, pleasant again. Get away from these, you know, hugely costly renewables, unreliable renewables, back to a, a rational energy policy. And yeah, a gas to nuclear path, I think, is for the time being, the most reasonable and the most cost-effective way 
both in terms of the economics, in terms of the security, and even, you know, in in terms of reducing emissions. Um, so they are the best bet we have. But the problem is that most governments are still prioritizing renewables because you have the green lobby and they are shouting so much louder than anyone else. And they want the subsidies. They want the handouts. It's all about that. It's not about rational energy policy. Uh, how are they uh, powering the grid right now in France? They have a lot of nuclear power, but are they load following a bit with gas as well? Or what are they doing? They have... And uh, as a result, also their energy prices are not as high as as the rest of Europe. Um, they wanted to increase renewables and decrease nuclear, but I think given the current energy security crisis, they've re reconsidered and are beginning to to change back to more nuclear and less renewables. And I think that is going to happen in most European countries. Remember in Sweden, they had a new uh, government uh, come in a few months ago and they abandoned their 100% renewables target and said they will go for 10 new nuclear power plants instead. So, you know, policies are beginning gradually to shift because governments are beginning to realize just how important, um, reliable energy and affordable energy is for their security and for the economy. Uh, separately, I saw a video uh, you did in a tour in Australia, uh, spreading some energy realism there. Uh, how did that go? And do you plan to do more of that uh, going overseas elsewhere? <laughs> to well, um, you see my main focus has always been on the policies rather than on the science. Um, because I always thought the science will never be set one way or another. And there will be, and, and also on the science, the, the, the most scientific institutions, most universities, most uh, agencies are completely committed to you know, saying the conventional wisdom. And so therefore, on the science, it's very difficult. The only thing really on the science that I think is important to, to make, the only argument uh, important to make is that it's not as bad as it's being claimed. So the global warming has happened, is happening, but it's at the very, very low end of all the kind of predictions. So the good news is it's not happening as dramatically as we were told or predicted. It is happening, but it is happening much slower, much lower, much less dramatic. And that gives us more time to get it right. That's, that's the case I'm, uh, I've been making and the GWPF has been making, um, trying to encourage also more proper discourse and debate among reasonable people, which is difficult, you know, with all the cancel culture and so on. But we have to go back and we have to get back to a situation where people 
can weigh up the pros and the cons of different policy options, of different pathways, of different views, without coming to a conclusion or without coming to a consensus. Because unless you shake the tree, unless you ask the awkward questions, it's like lemmings all going in the wrong direction. And I think this is one of our big aims uh, of our foundation is to encourage, to get back to a situation where you can discuss these things properly with people who have different views, completely different views, but in a gentlemanly, fair, balanced manner without claiming that the other side is nuts and crazy and, and so on. But it's hard to get there, but we have to get back there. Yeah, one area where um, my focus is different from yours is that I wouldn't say that the CO2 we've emitted since 1850, I don't think it's been as bad as claimed. I think it's actually been good that it's increased crop yields and any warming that we have caused has actually, that's been good too. So that's a slight difference in our approach between, between you and me there. Yeah, yeah well, look, uh, I mean, there are, of course, economists who make the case that there is a kind of threshold at which warming uh, changes from being beneficial to being detrimental, right? And it used to be two degrees. Some people said 1.5, two degrees. But if you, I mean, you, you, I think you can make the case easily that the warming up until now has been beneficial by and large at the global level. I mean, you know, you compare the world as it was a hundred years ago to the world as it is today in terms of, you know, agriculture, any, any basically uh, issue you want to look at and it has beneficial, but I think that in itself is not the issue. The issue is, kind of claims what's going to happen when that threshold goes to, you know, detrimental. Um, but again, this is something that is not the main concern for policymakers. Policymakers think and tick differently. They look at what is you know, the best option, the best policy option for their economy, for their consumers, for their voters, and so on. And we're trying to encourage them to think outside the box and to think reasonably and rationally, which, which requires that they're not scared to death by the scares. Because once you're scared, you take irrational uh, decisions. You rush into something people say, look, this will solve all your problems. You just hand over a hundred billion and problem solved. And you say, okay, well, we'll do that. Right. And then you realize, you know, nothing has changed and it's actually a big kind of money transfer. Um, so this is what I think, which makes us slightly different to other organizations that focus more on the science bit. We intentionally, from the start, that's why we're called Global Policy Foundation. From the very start, we said, this is our main focus because we are dealing with policymakers 
and we are trying to provide them with the information and the data and the options, the different options for them to weigh up what is best for their constituents and their countries. So speaking of uh, crazy ideas, I saw an interview you did about Burger King moving away from selling beef burgers for some reason that the real reason is to prevent bad weather in the future, right? It's going to prevent droughts and fires or whatever in the future. Does it get any crazier than that? Look, these are companies that are jumping on a bandwagon, right? Um, you had a famous beer company that jumped on the wrong, on the wrong bandwagon. Sorry. Lola, shush. Uh, sorry. So, you know, some companies jump on the wrong bandwagon and end up with a big financial uh, penalty. Some think they can ride the tiger. Um, this burger company, I don't think, I mean, that was a very short-lived thing. I think, uh, I mean... I'm pretty sure most of the burger chains have veggie burgers nowadays, right? And and they are saying, look, we even have something for green campaigners. You can come in. Don't worry. We have something for you as well. You know, all right. I have no, I have no problem with that. It's not the future of Burger King or, or whatever, but uh, these, these things, you know, uh, virtue signaling, you have ESG. I mean, the whole ESG movement is based on virtual signal. And it, and some companies have suffered as a consequence. But even that's dying away, right? The BlackRock guy said he, he didn't want to say ESG anymore because it got kind of poisoned that people figured out what it was and they don't want it. It's not only that it's poisoned, it's they're, they're hemorrhaging billions. You know, these ESG funds are losing tens or hundreds of billions, whereas the conventional funds are making a killing. So people are beginning to realize that, you know, political investment just doesn't make any sense. Wanted to ask you if, have you been to any of the COP meetings in the past, or do you have any inside look at, what do you think about the people that are attending? Do they actually think that they're preventing bad weather in the future? Because I think Willie Soon was uh, saying he knows some people that uh, they just go there and it's kind of a vaca vacation. And I just wonder what percent actually believe they're preventing bad weather. Look, I've never been to a COP and I have no intention of going to any. It's it's a waste of time and money. Uh, and it's not good fun either. And it's so predictable too. Um, I think it's a mix um I do not doubt that a lot of people really, really are afraid of climate change and the consequences of climate change, and they believe that we are facing Armageddon. That's um, probably not the policymakers. Politicians tend to be more cynical. And the lobbyists. I mean, this is a, most, perhaps 90% of the people who attend these COP meetings are lobbyists in one way or another, whether they are lobbyists for NGOs or for companies or countries or industries. They all want to get 
something out of it. And it's a big trade fair, essentially. Um, and they get out a you know an annual winter holiday too, with you know the best holiday, you know, hotels and uh, including the various services that come with it. <laughs> um, do they expect? I mean, they do believe that they are making a difference. They have been. They. You know, the, this is what they are saying. I guess a lot of people are disillusioned by the reality. The reality is, as I mentioned, going the opposite direction of where they want to go. So there will be more usage of coal and oil and gas in 10 years and 20 years times than now, much more. So CO2 emissions continue to rise and they will continue to rise for decades to come. And interestingly enough, we will reach perhaps the 1.5 degree threshold at some point. We might, but people won't even notice the difference. You know, people won't notice the difference between what it was 10 years ago or when it's 1.5 degree warmer than uh, 150 years ago. So people are beginning to realize that the movement is shrinking. The movement is shrinking. The goals are further away than ever before. The ambitions are shrinking. The countries are not delivering. But as long as the money is running, you know, as long as there is money in the game and there's plenty of money in the game, it will go on forever, forever and ever. So there might still be a cop meeting in 2050? Oh, yeah, definitely. If it's not, if it's not a cop meeting on climate, it might be a cop meeting on AI or, you know, you guess what the next big scale will be. Uh, there will always be these meetings. It's too good not to have, you know, a paid winter holiday in some nice, you know, location in a warm, nice city, town or, or place, you know, yeah. paid everything. Um, that will go on forever. But whether it will be a climate COP in 2050, I don't know. I don't know. That depends on, you know, what happens in the next 20, 30 years. Yeah. From my perspective, I haven't been the cops either, but it does seem like the paid vacation to someplace warm in December has got to be a big part of it. But how about if they held it in Detroit in December or January? Would they still get 20,000 people? I think oh, they yeah. would. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it, it has been in Glasgow. Well, in there December, you go. Or in Warsaw. <laughs> no, no. They, they, they come and go. These are, you know, nice uh, places, warm heated places, good hotels, good food. No, they, they, they won't be um, disheartened by some occasional northern wintry town. Um, but the whole, you see, what, what is called the kind of globalist, globalist agenda is also in crisis because of the geopolitical tension between the new kind of challengers, the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians, who are challenging the status quo. And it's much more difficult to find kind of common ground 
um, very difficult because they are challenging the, the status quo, the kind of uh, rule-based global order, and they want to grab as much land and power as they can. Um, and then countries have to decide what's more important, climate change or national security, war or peace. All right, I just have a couple more questions for you. Uh, one was about uh, heat pumps in the UK. How's that going with the pushing people to, or uh, maybe uh, is it subsidized heat pumps? How's that whole thing going? Not, it's not going very well. They are quite expensive, even with uh, handouts. The government is sending out quite generous subsidies. It's mainly kind of upper middle class people who can afford them. Um, you also need to have very well insulated homes for them to work because they don't heat as well as normal gas boilers or gas heating. Um, so they're not going very well. Um, and of course, we're always being told uh, they'll be dead cheap in the future. Well, if they're dead cheap in the future, they might, you know, pick up. But for the time being, they're, they're, they're not really going anywhere. And we have a similar problems now with EVs. Um, basically, everyone who wanted an EV has an EV. Uh, most families who have EVs have two or three other cars, by the way. Um, and there is now a lack of demand, um, particularly among the middle classes, for EVs. People are reluctant to jump. Uh, they are still a third or 50% more expensive as conventional cars. So people are hesitant of buying EVs and, and, you know, we're covering these stories about dealers sitting on these EVs and can't sell them on. So I, I guess there will be a, a growing problem with EVs as, as people are reluctant to buy these kind of luxury cars, unless the cost again comes dramatically down. Uh, but given that, you know, the electric batteries are so expensive and uh, no one can see them coming down that fast, um, we'll have to wait and see. That is a general problem with just about all of these green solutions, all right, that they cost more and they don't work as well as what they're replacing. It seems over and over, that's what I'm seeing. That's the main problem. That's also the reason why most of the developing world isn't following uh, the European or American kind of uh, rush into renewables because they can see it's not working and it's making uh, energy so expensive. They're not going, A, they can't afford to. B, they can see it's not even working in the, in the developed world. If you really, I mean, this is the, 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 the bottom line. If you really want the rest of the world to follow your example, you have to offer something that is attractive and lucrative and actually makes life easier for people, not harder. And the whole green movement is a kind of movement of, of spoiled middle-class people who can virtue signal, you know, how green they are by spending money on more expensive forms of whether it's food or whether it's travel or holidays, whatever. They want to show off that they can afford the cleaner stuff 
And the opposite obviously has to happen if you want to make this a global issue. You have to make it attractive economically. And by and large, that's what we've done without any policies. We've cleaned up our air, we've cleaned up our water, we've cleaned up our environment over the last 100 years because of economic development and growth. If you look at the countries that are the cleanest from a purely environmental point of view, it's the countries who are developed most. So development, economic growth and development is the solution to environmental problems. You go to poor countries, that's where the environmental problems are more manifest. And that's the the, 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 the whole argument is if you want, you know, to, to save species from extinction, if you want uh, to protect environment landscapes, you need people to have a good living standard so that they don't go down and cut down the trees to burn and heat their homes, which is what's happening in Africa. Okay, my final question here is that I saw your name on the cast list for uh, Martin Durkin's new climate change movie. Do you have any comments on his work or uh, filming or anything about that? Well, I'm very curious to see the um, end result of his second climate film. Obviously, his first one um, was a huge success. And I look forward to his new film. Um, I just saw some snippets and it looks very, very promising. So keen to see the full thing next year. Very good. Uh, any other uh, final points you'd like to make before we go ahead and finish this one off? Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, I think you're doing a great job interviewing all the kind of participants in this big debate. Um, and I look forward to many more of your interviews. All right. Thank you very much. I hope to uh, have you on again. Talk to you Thanks. next time, Benny Pison. All right. Cheers. Bye. -bye. Bye.